0: Jennifer's here said to me, how did you get into this? I said, well, I fell into it. I had... Interestingly, I've never had a course in bioethics. They didn't exist. It wasn't heavy. Uh, and how did I get into the issue of nutrition fluid? Jenny asked. And I said, well, that was in the great American style. There was a court case. And I ended up testifying that. This morning, or this afternoon, we did grand rounds at Radcliffe. And the physician who was introducing the question had to do with removing artificial, nutritional fluid from a patient who wanted to starve himself to death. And she said, we've never seen a case like this. I said, well, I have bad news. <coughs> we've been discussing this issue since the 16th century. Uh, and we have. There's a long history of it. And there are, as you can imagine, long, long cases in the United States on these. It began there and hasn't ended. They go on. Pretty much that issue has been resolved legally, at least." In question is, how did this all happen? Well, Americans, Alexis de Tocqueville, writing in the 19, 1830s on democracy in America, came to the United States and observed it and he said, these Americans have a really strange way of behaving. <coughs> he wasn't the first to observe that, no the last. <laughs> but he said, what they do is they take all of life's moral dilemmas, transform them into legal problems, and run to court saying, tell us what we should think. And the judges are not terribly desirous of hearing these cases. I tell you when you talk to judges' conferences, the last thing in the world I don't want to do is to get a medical case in here. In fact, in one of the famous cases we had in Boston, the Brophy case about nutritional fluid, the judge in the probate court was so reluctant to hear it that after six weeks he still hadn't responded to a call to emergency hearing. And I told the attorney, go to the appeals court and inform them. And the appellate judge said. Why are you here three months after this emergency order? Because the judge won't answer. So the judge in the appeals court picked up the phone, called the trial judge, said "You will schedule this for Monday morning. What do you think the trial judge
1: did? I have no idea.
0: He didn't want to hear it, so what's the easiest way not to hear it? He went on vacation. He was subsequently removed from the bench by the Supreme Court on the grounds that he absolutely refused to hear cases involving controversy. A judge. <laughs> it's sort of like being a, a firefighter and saying, well, I'm not going in that building. With smoke coming out. Say, well, he is, he's not a fireman, no. But that's what we had. The first of these cases occurred in, Cal- in the United States. And part of it is... Ed Pellegrino wrote a wonderful little article years ago in JAMA. said, you can divide all of medical history in three parts, from Hippocrates to 1960, from 1960 to 1990, when everything happened, and from 1990 on. From 1990 on, it says just chaos. <laughs> Prior to the first part, he said, from Hippocrates to about 1960, it was really probably about 1950, nothing much changed. And there was very little that the physician could do, and so they did very little. Everything he could do was in that little black bag that marked off the physician, and he couldn't do much. And most people died of overwhelming sepsis, and life expectancy was about 40 years old or so. And this whole question about the use of artificial nutrition fluid and maintaining people's largest weight never occurred. Why not? Because
1: you couldn't do anything.
0: We didn't have any way to feed them. In fact, if you used a simple IV, how long can that? useful to as to sustain a person. Uh, the the old-fashioned ones? Yes, yeah, the old-fashioned ones. Oh, days, hours. Days, hours, not very long. And then they had this simple little flexible rubber tube you could put down the nose and feed the patient Isocal. But we didn't really have total peridone nutrition until your lifetime. And when it originally came in, it could only be done by surgeons in the hospital. So we had one surgeon at the University of Massachusetts who could do it it wasn't a common procedure. And without those lipids and fats, you couldn't really sustain the individual for very long, You'd be feeding gastrostomy. So we didn't have patients. This technology, and Pellegrino writes, he said the technology came in and it changed everything. And now that we have this technology, the question is, granted it can be done, should it be done? And the technology is such that the Vatican, which I suppose is second to none in its concern for life, Issued a so-called declaration of euthanasia in 1980, and Part Four says we have to protect patients now from the potential abuse that occurs from this technology. We have this technology, in part, in great parts of hardware technology. We can stave off death, but we can't restore you to functionally integrated existence. And then comes the question: Oh, we can do it today. And the question is: Do you want it? Would you want it? And the big question, of course, was the Karen Ann Quinlan case, and what happened if you were in a persistent vegetative state? Do you have any idea what that means? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it means she writes on <laughs> these things.
2: That you are unconscious, and if you're in a permanent vegetative state, you're highly unlikely ever to regain awareness of yourself or your environment.
0: Yeah, and it takes three months if it's to make an <clears your throat> assessment. And or in the
2: UK, in six months, in six you'd, months. you'd like to double it <laughs> for the anoxic <laughs> injury.
0: Well, I suppose you don't pay for it's out of pockets. Of <laughs> yeah. So, like yes, if it's a well-diagnosed, and then comes the question, how long can you maintain an individual in this form? Well, the old record was 37 years, 111 days. It's now being surpassed by somebody in Florida. Uh, and comes the question, if, in fact, you were to suffer, and most of these have been... Cameron and is 20 years old. so They're not necessarily ancient, although most people slip into PBS out of Alzheimer's. Uh, if you could be in a well-diagnosed, persistent mental state, and we know we could maintain you, and what do you feel?
2: If I was, if I was in PBS, what yeah. do I feel now? Well, if I was in PBS, I hope I feel nothing. And you how you I feel, feel
0: now? <laughs> hey, at least that's what they know. tell us, if you can believe them. Uh, but they say there's no, there's no sensations. You have no experience of anything. It's being unconscious, <coughs> and now the difference of PBS and unconsciousness, okay, a coma is it used to be called terminal coma was the old phrase, mm-hmm. and the term persistent vegetative state was devised by Fred Plumet, NYU in 1972, and it's a pejorative sort of term. People don't like to call it vegetables, but he said they have no conscious activity. That's what he was describing. Uh, and apparently they have no sensei. They're not responsive to pain. Uh, and you can be maintained this way for 30, 70, but there's no suffering. And this is important because of one quote that said, well, you could stop if the patient is in pain of such character as it would be inhumane to continue. Well, if you're not experiencing any pain, they say there's great gain, you continue living, and there's no pain, so would you want it? Me personally you, yes. really not. I think
2: I said to my not. dignity, to my family, to how, the NHS. Yeah,
0: look at all these people here. How many of them would want to be maintained this way? And we can do it. <coughs> we have
3: one. I should say that you say 37 years, but that's not the median. So it's not the median.
0: It's the I said it was the longest recorded to date. Yes, yes. yes, so. yes, yes. As so, as so accurately?
3: accurately? Yeah, yeah, no, no, but but uh, so, so, so when you say how fast when people run, you don't say how fast
4: people fast in front of run. Or run.
3: Oh places. yes, to do. His name is Roger Bannister. Yeah. So, but, so, so. We um, don't ask how far you can run. No, because that's so, it, a
0: matter of indifference. Well, it, but it not it not it it to me. But the world doesn't care what's important
3: to you. No, but if we're if we're talking about, uh, what, anyhow, what, what, if you what, want what to give a to lecture, lecture, there's a lecture schedule <laughs> you can
0: sign up. <laughs> uh, but how many of you would want to be maintained? In this, when the average life expectancy is about a year, but you could go for 37, and we have no way of knowing when we start how long you're going to last. You also do not know how medical technology will stand 37 years from now. No, we don't, but we make our decisions when? 37 years from now? No, we make the decisions in the, in the now.
3: I can make my decision that now I will wait 37 years and then...
0: But, and they can say, oh, what a foolish bet that was. It was a bad bet, yeah. <laughs> it was a bad bet. I, I, I can
1: take it on. Surely we have to make the decision before we are oh, in this state. We have to write our advanced decisions.
0: Yes, or, or at least have articulated some views on it. That can, becomes a problem. No, not necessarily, though. We've got nice ways. Judges can find ways to do it, going into old British law for it. We'll talk about those, maybe. But you can be kept this way, and the question is, should you Would you want it to be done? Now, the first of these cases that actually came up was quite dramatic and occurred in California as a legal case. Now, there were no legal cases before, because, in fact, you couldn't sustain people. We didn't have the technology to do it. So it wasn't a question. Now we have the technology, and the question is, granted, right we have it, ought it be used? And then comes the question, whose decision is it? Uh, And that's always the big question. There are two big questions that occur in bioethics. One, whose decision is it? And on what standard is the decision going to be made? Well, the first of these cases occurred in California. It was a man named Mr. Herbert, Clarence Herbert. And he went into the hospital for simple ileostomy closure. It was uneventful surgery 20 minutes. And before he went in, he said to his family, his wife and his seven adult children, if anything goes wrong, I don't want to be another Karen Ann Quinlan." She had proceeded him along this way, and she's, she was maintained with a feeding tube for almost 10 years. When finally the decision was made not to provide antibiotics, when she got promoted, and she then died. He had the surgery, it was successful, and when he was in the recovery room, the nurse was moving somebody in from the ICU to another room, and he suffers an unwitnessed cardiac arrest. And the data for successful resuscitation with unwitnessed cardiac arrest in elderly patients is? dismal. And the doctors said, we've got his heart beating again, but he's unconscious, and we don't anticipate that he ever will be conscious again. Probably a little <laughs> quick for that assessment, but that's what they said. The wife of the seven children said, he told us beforehand he wouldn't like to be kept this way, so shut off the ventilator." And I remember they shot. But guess what? They didn't do a PCO2 test, and he breathed on his own. Now he's precisely what he said he didn't want to be, somebody who was permanently unconscious, being maintained with an IV feeding tube. And one of the sons said to a nurse who was placing the cast in the line, stop everything. She said, Oh, you better talk with Dr. Nadel, the chief of surgery. So Dr. Nadel said, that's acceptable, and signed an order to remove the feeding tube. He had originally signed the order for the removal of the ventilator. And here's where the problem came. You remove ventilators occasionally. And you usually order a misting machine when you do it.
5: It's a misting it
0: machine. Puts out little vapors, a vapor, to prevent the mucus plug from blocking. No. Yeah. What's that? They just switched the machine off. They just switched the machine off. They great certainty that it's going to stop breathing. Usually works. Usually works. But when it does not Well, the upshot of it was that the nursing supervisor came the next morning and sees a young resident and says, Where's the mystic machine? It's standard nursing practice, it's standard protocol. Now you've been a resident, you call them registrars, is that it? And if the head nurse, who's the supervisor on duty for the weekend, says to you, young Dr. Wilkinson, why have you not used the standard protocol, what would you tend to do? I do what they say. You Do what they say. <laughs> and guess who comes in 20 minutes later? The chief of surgery, who says, Dr. Wilkinson, have you pronounced Mr. Herbert dead yet? And you say... No. No, in fact, I, I
5: put, the, misting put on. the missing machine The missing machine
0: Tell me what happens in a British hospital when the chief of surgery finds that the resident has done just the opposite of what he told him to do. Ah uh, yes. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and the first thing you must find, who is this who gave this order? So then there's a fight between the nurse and the so she decides she's going to get him. And after they remove the feeding tube. He survives for seven days and dies. The family's in attendance. And the nurse goes to the district attorney and she raises two questions. One, isn't food and water an ordinary means? And two, isn't every patient entitled to ordinary care? And your answer would be no
1: patient is ordinary.
0: No. No patient is ordinary. Well, they're just talking about the treatment itself. Hmm. And you hear these phrases, ordinary and extraordinary care, what do those words mean? Any idea? Because they're terribly misused, confused, and abused. And in fact, we've argued in the President's Commission that they should simply no longer be used. They're no longer useful in public discourse. And they came out of 16th century moral theology. And the question was, and this is where we went into Dr. Wilkinson this morning, uh, what are you obliged to do to teach? your life going. Do you have any obligations to sustain your life?
1: Not if you have capacity.
0: Well, that's the modern secular world, but go back to the (laughs) 16th century. Go back to to 16th century medieval Oxford.
1: You owe it to God.
0: It was theologically, it was to God. And if you failed in your duty to God, what was the theological understanding of what the consequences? You went okay. to hell. Now, if, in fact, I told you that if you didn't utilize certain resources, certain procedures to sustain your life, you'd go to hell, what would be your first question?
1: What's
4: mm. else? <laughs> <laughs> what was the question?
0: If you understood that your failure to utilize those procedures to sustain your life that you required to do, what would be your first question? What excuses me? Wouldn't
4: it? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. And so the theologian sat and said, "Well, what, what would excuse you? What do you think would excuse you?" Um.
4: Well, I mean, I think that it sort of, it's futile. What's What
0: to Your mother was right, Mister. You never use that F word in public. <laughs> 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 it doesn't solve it. Yes. <clears throat> just that... It's sort of in the goes of the right direction, I think. It does. The first is, and I'll use this example of we used this morning, supposing in fact you had a rare disease that could be cured if you went into outer space. Hmm. Mm. A, is it physically possible for you to do that today? To go into outer space.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh yes it is. Yes it is, of course How far? it is. You <laughs> just have to go out of randomness. OK,
0: yeah, uh, you don't have to go to the moon. Yeah. Now, no. is there a way for you to get there, other than being an astronaut? No. Oh, yes, there is. SpaceX. Huh. Hey, hey,
4: Russia. Hey, Russia. Putin will do it for you. He'll <laughs> give you transcripts
0: to meeting the Oval Office and give you a trip to the, sure. uh, the space. <laughs> and the price is? Five million dollars. Are you going? I have the money. What's that? If I had the money, I'd go. Do you, I that's the question. Do you have the ability to do this? Well, yeah, like,
1: yes.
4: What? I I have right? <laughs> <To laughs> five million dollars. <laughs> no, I don't so, so,
0: you are not obliged to do that. You, you, you can't be obliged to do the impossible. Sure, yes. And what else would make you? For example, now you didn't live through the American Civil War, but you've seen the movies. And it was great slaughter on the battlefields. And the people get their legs shattered by a cannonball. What's the medical remedy for that? You're a medicine, are you not? No, no I'm not.
4: You're a it, Your philosophy, philosophy student. But, um, <laughs> well, I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. every every He'd <laughs> <away. People> like <laughs> that stricken from the right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. exactly. Now, here comes the great question. What, By what title do you call surgeons in the UK? Never met one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. No, well, I have, the I don't know
4: what they call cool. Are there any
0: surgeons here? What's their title? Consultant? Mr. I mean, Mr. No, Mr. 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 That's Dr. Wilkinson and Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown is a surgeon and still called Mr. Now, why are they called Mr.? Because no physician would ever, ever perform a decapitation.
1: <laughs> why not? <laughs> decapitation. <laughs>
0: why not? Um. They followed Hippocrates' great exhortation. Remember when Hippocrates is talking about what's, what's the role of the physician? he said so the role of the physician was threefold. To alleviate suffering, reverse disease processes where possible, and not to impose to medical treatment on the dying, why not? Uh, because they're dying? Yeah, because they will, back, back in his day now, huh? if they're dying, they're going to die. die. And what happens if you treat them and they die? What are people gonna say, what's you mean? Xavier. Xavier. What are they going to say about Xavier? Uh, if they
4: treat me. No, you treat them and they all die. Uh, I mean, that was just a waste of, was yeah. a waste of resources. Yeah.
0: All of which tells us what about you. Um, I'm Bad business. Yeah, I'm <laughs> you're stupid. <Yeah. laughs> you don't know what you're doing. And what happens to your business? I go broke. You go broke. So he's, he's very carefully telling them don't jeopardize your profession by doing things that don't work. Now, and that's why physicians never went into surgery, because it wasn't going to be successful. They weren't going to be successful. Now, who did the surgery in those days? Who'd be good with knives and saws?
1: Butchers. Butchers. yeah, okay. Who cuts the leg off the lamb for
0: your lamb chops? The butcher. The butcher. does it with a saw, doesn't he? Yeah. Or you can have a barber. He's good with it. When they used to have the barber of, uh, of Sweetie Time, you know, the straight person. So they were good with that. Now, they're going to amputate that leg. What are we going to use for the anesthetic? Mm-hmm. We didn't have it. Ether had not been yet devised. In fact, you can go to the ether dome in the Mass General Hospital these days, it's still there, but they used the ether happened not so long ago. So what happens when the butcher comes along with his saw and says, we can pack this off? What are you gonna
4: do? As the patient. Yeah.
0: die if you don't do it. You're going to die if you do do it. <laughs> but if you do do it, you're going to die with what? Lots of pain. Lots of pain. And the way we stop you from screaming and making the barber or the butcher very unhappy is to ask you to bite the bullet. Do you know what that means? Uh, well, I
4: know what it means figuratively, but does what does it mean figuratively? Uh, well, you got to kind of face.
0: And they're not going to use a modern bullet made of brass because the purpose of biting it was to put it into your mouth and you squeeze down. It. The purpose of it was to keep you from screaming, which is what you tend to, is not. And if we let you scream at your own full thing, it would bother, the butcher, wouldn't it? Now, you wouldn't. Now, don't you keep as tightly as you can. Scream as loudly as you can. Now you, know why. <laughs> now you know why they say bite the bullet. It's to keep you from screaming in the ear of the person who's trying to amputate yeah. your leg. In the meantime, it's very painful. So were you required to undergo something that's very painful? No. Or something was very burdensome if they told you to move to another country. Yeah. No, I don't know any Offer substantial benefit to you as a person, why would you do it? And that's where it all started, back with the Hippocrates. And then by the 16th century, they began looking at this and said, this the same principles apply. And they said, we don't have to do it. What would excuse you from if it's too costly? Because number one it's costly, you say. Or too burdensome or too painful, or didn't offer substantial expectation of Benefit to you. Then we come over to Jenny, and she's now in her PBS condition, and she says this could happen, despite the fact you are going to the finest hospital in the nation, and we know where that is.
1: No. I was
2: going to say John oh. Patrick, if I imagine. Oh, am I meant to say John Matson? You would. Ah, would I? Sorry, I come from Cardiff. I'm
0: mistrained to say he, <laughs> <laughs> oh they write here we are and but things could go wrong and so you would say if they all go wrong I don't want this and now comes the question is it legitimate to withhold the feeding tube that we have here and we can place this now without great deal of pain can't we we have anesthesia we don't have to give you a bullet to do, we'll give you some anesthesia. Mm-hmm. We can easily insert this into your abdomen and mm-hmm. or into your stomach and then i put it in the abdomen because then you get it would be awful. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Now, the big question today at Radcliffe is, here's a man who's 54 years old who said, I want to die and I want to die by not eating and I want pain relief with pain in And the doctors had one question. Can you, with an advanced directive, I mean, you can, but would we have a duty to follow it? To say, I don't want food and water. Or, as we have now, artificial nutrition fluids. And we know, we know perfectly well how long you can live without food and water. We learned all this from the Nazi experiments. How long can you go without food? These are part of the greatest experiment. Weeks. weeks and weeks. Fifty-four days or so. You live off the fat of the land. As it were. Yeah. Uh, how long without fluids? It's
2: two or three weeks. Five we or seven days.
0: Five or seven days. So, came the question. When the Germans are putting supplies in the lifeboats, would you put food in there?
2: Not if you didn't think people would be collected up, picked up in that time. So you've just put. Float. And if we don't get them
0: within 50 days, what can mm-hmm. we? Do? Mm-hmm. What can we discern? They could eat fish. <laughs> <laughs> Let them eat yeah. fish. That's known to happen. Usually, with airplanes, have in the Andes, and stuff like that. But you can live for this long. And then with Mr. Herbert, the question came. He now has the feeding tube inserted, and the family asked to have it removed, and it is, and the nurse, who was appalled at this, went to the district attorney and said, this is murder. What do you think? Murder? Or acceptable medical (coughs) practice? Oh, she's now using the famous muffler. This is a well-known trick. (laughs) Are you a (laughs) medical resident? This is a well-known trick in... Medical school. She's going to choke. Be careful. I <laughs> am <laughs> <laughs> not mean to choke, ma'am. I'm not going to choke. No, she told us <laughs> her wishes. <laughs> All we can do about her wishes is get there. What? <laughs> the, the thing was, so, tell the medical students, when you're going to see them coming around, just take a bite on the them. I said, well, we'll wait. We'll wait. <laughs> and I told these medical students, there was an article in the Journal of the american Medical Association the we'll fine find out of pimping. Pimping is a technical term in medicine, meaning what? Do you use that term? No,
3: we no. don't. Yeah, okay, yeah. You know what it means? To to offer one's services merely for the prospect of money.
0: Well, that's <laughs> somebody services. That's another word. The yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But offer somebody else's services. Pimping in medicine was when the consultant came along and you asked questions of the residents to see whether they. Know anything about this? You know what I'm talking about, and so you put them on the spot by asking these questions, and there were really clear rules about it. You never ever question the chief resident. Don't embarrass him in front of his. And then came the question: How do you avoid getting caught? Eat them up, (laughs) but. When the nurse went to the district attorney with the question, isn't food and water an ordinary means? And isn't everybody kind of an ordinary kid? The district attorney said, yes, they are. He had no idea what he was talking about. And he then charged with first degree murder. He had two great theories. What do you think the theories of the district attorney about, about what these doctors had done? They murdered the patient. Why? How they did it? Why did it? You need a motive to manage your Well, uh, they did that because, in the absence of a written Money. they realized they had screwed out. And he's now in the persistent better state. He could be here how long? 10 years. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And, and who's gonna pay for all that? The hospital. The hospital. So, bury the evidence. Get rid of how oh, this is And the lawyers, and they have 11 lawyers in the case, said, we knew they murdered him, we knew they killed him, we knew we'd get them off, the trouble is we didn't know how we were gonna do it. How, you feel how would you defend what the doctors did, pulling the patient to save money?
1: It wasn't up to the doctors. What's that? It was up to him and what he told his family. Shame he didn't write it down. Was he couldn't?
0: Do you have to have it in writing?
1: In practice, no court of law will recognize it adequately unless it's in writing. Well, there
0: we have been courts that have recognized it.
1: I've seen courts that haven't recognized it. I've seen courts that haven't recognized it too. <laughs> oh, it
0: would have been so much nicer if they put it in writing. But
1: Blame the patient. Yep. Blame the family.
0: Yep. How are you going to mount a defense as to what the doctor did?
1: All let the patient's wishes.
0: Well, supposing the patient said to you, I want to go out in a burst of glory. I don't want to go quietly, slip into that good night. I want to have you, what's your name? Tess. Tess. I want to have Tess come with a Magnum 357 and blow my brains out against this white wall and let the blood come down like
1: But this patient wasn't asking you to do something. He was asking you not to do something. Not to use intrusive medicine on him to prolong your diet.
0: Ah, and then comes the big fight. Is food and water medicine?
1: If it's shoved in through a tube in the stomach, yes. And
0: and certainly... You're not
1: having the usual sensory... Inputs and the pleasure, yeah. you're still burping and bringing up acid. You may say it's painless to put it in. I've seen the pain it causes patients who have to put up with it, who just cannot bear it in their sight.
0: So the argument was made did the first question was, did Mr. Herbert have a moral obligation to undergo this intervention?
3: There's two separate questions because does the patient have an obligation? to
0: receive feeding, but also does the doctor have an obligation to deliver the feeding? Right, those, but first, first one is the patient. Okay. And does the patient have an obligation to accept any medical treatment that you propose? Are they theological or non-theological? Non-theological. Sin is gone. How many of you wrote a wonderful book, Whatever Happened to Sin? Is it, is it, in this secular pluralistic society of England, this Fair Isle, sin is not a common phenomenon. Sin is kind of phenomenal terms.
3: So, if he autonomy, if he has autonomy,
1: then he oh, has a, he has what a freedom is to choose.
3: Autonomy, autonomy is the freedom to determine the course of one's own life. You
1: have to have capacity for that. Oh, and by definition, these patients do not have capacity. Oh, you don't have
0: to have capacity. We'll, we'll, let's leap forward to the big question that comes. Most of these patients, what percent of you have a written advanced directive? Two, three. Poor. Appalling. appalling is right.
1: <laughs> but um, England is different from America, I mean.
0: You told me that be, they better have it in writing or they have no protection.
1: The, all your relatives' thinks they can represent your wishes and the GPs, the, the, the medical practitioners, listen, but in the end, they end up making a medical decision because that is easier for them to. For, the to only call one the they best really legitimately
0: called upon to make. What? Well, they get nervous. They don't want to be charged with murder, yeah. do they? And they read about this case in California, and there are just as many wild prosecutors in the UK as around the United States. so, and so everyone
1: <laughs> goes for the least restrictive option. Mm-hmm
0: which I call prolonging the dying process. Sure, it's easier. It's easy to say. It's
5: expensive, but everyone's protecting their own bags. It's not necessarily more expensive than the lawyers. Which are
4: responsible for perhaps a third of the cost of of, of America. Oh, it's very costly to go
0: to take these cases. These are cases, so-called cases of first impression. The lawyer says, I don't know, I'm going to have to do a lot of research here. What do you think a lawyer would tell you if you had a relative who's now in a persistent vegetative state in a feeding to remove removed? he would say this will cost about what, up front?
2: In the US, I have no idea. Oh no, in the UK. In the UK it's a responsibility of the clinical commissioning group to take that bill now. They have very clear guidelines. Oh. You're not meant to pay. It'll cost the health board in the in Wales or the Clinical Commissioning group in England a lot of money. A lot of but people. less actually than sustaining that person. So that she is cost-saving, which is a bit of a problem.
0: <laughs> the case of Herbert though came to one, what's his obligation to undergo this medical intervention that he had specifically said that he didn't want? And the answer is he doesn't have one. If he has some obligation to undergo it, what claim does a physician have to impose it? What do you need in order to touch? Patient consent. consent. This is an old, old, old English theory. It goes back to 1767 in Slater versus Baker and Stapleton. And uh, do you know this case? It's a marvelous case. Mr. Baker was a surgeon, and Mr. Slater broke his leg, and came, and the treatment for a broken leg was compression, and the callus formed. But Mr. Baker had a great idea that he had a better way of doing it called extension. So he invented this little machine that had teeth on it. But in order to test out his machine, what did he need? Some, some wing victims. A broken <laughs> leg. Now, if you sit around waiting at Retro Hospital for a broken leg to come in, you might... It wouldn't take too long, I'm sure. No, but you'll <laughs> put you in... I mean, you know, actually, you'll be fixed. Yeah. yeah. So there's a faster way of getting a broken leg. Make one yourself. Make the leg broken. So he, they take the knee. I love this thing. It's written in old English. And they the apothecary and the surgeon take the patient's knee and they give it a crack. And I always use one of my students say, What would you say? Now, Xavier, we know what you would say. But don't use those words I've told you. In fact, the patient reportedly says, Why now hath broke what nature hath healed? <laughs> so the British have a fine way of speaking. But... Uh, So he did write it, and then he sues. And the defense was, he was at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, still there, he was the first surgeon at St. Bartholomew's, he had a great reputation, he gave lectures all over the country, uh, published lots of articles, and how dreadful to accuse him of not knowing what he was doing. The court looked and said, we know what he was doing, what was he doing? He wasn't treating the patient. He, was treating a patient, he was testing an experimental procedure. But what do you need for that? Consent. Now, interestingly, the word that you usually use when you're talking about consent, you usually put an adjective in front of it, which is? Informed. Informed. But the British didn't do that. They got consent. You're a physician. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <make a> if <mic. laughs> <laughs> you've got a leg that needs or not? Well, we'll just have a hand that needs You know the disease, you've got the disease. And now they put a little injection in. And they can't give you an anesthetic because it would dilute the injection. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think will happen if you come along with this nice big bore needle and you stop? It'll hurt. It'll hurt. So, what might the patient want to do? sweet No. Punch back. No. Pull, Pull the, the hand it. back. Mm-hmm. So you tell him what you're going to do, so that he can, not put away, not put away and you might have a, somebody else hold the hand down, but you're telling him, and you say, look, this is going to hurt. So, but the whole consent is to have the patient cooperate. It's not to, that was the old English way. Remember, Hippocrates says, about what do you tell the patient? Hippocrates says, tell the patient nothing. Of his or her present or future conditions. Why not?
3: But they might mistake your, your attempts to help. No. Why? You
0: might get it wrong. Huh? No. Trauma. What's that? Trauma. Psychological trauma. They might say, "Oh my, God, that's going to hurt." I'm not going. I'm safe here. I'm not going to be amputated, you know, uh, <laughs> decapitated, or whatever it is
1: is we you know.
0: No. And he doesn't get the good thing that. So you don't tell him lest he get all, this is the so-called therapeutic exception later, and runs away. So I'm not going to do it. So the company says, you come to the doctor, and here's the interesting question. Why do you go to a doctor? Now, Jenny, you don't take every problem that you have to the doctor, do you? No. No. Do you ever get a little, you do, you do lots of paper. Do you ever get a little paper burn? Yes. Yeah, cut, a little paper cut. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you do when you get a paper cut?
2: I say, ouch, Ignore it.
0: Ignore it? So you just bleed on
2: it? Usually, yes. I'm afraid so.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I could have put a bandaid on. I can see that's probably the right answer.
0: What do kids do? They suck it. They suck it. What do cats do? They lick it. They lick it. Now, what do cats and kids know that you don't?
2: There's something in saliva that is magical for healing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is the best
5: anticoagulant we've is it not? Uh, it's new to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we have seminars. (laughs) (laughs) i
1: (laughs) cat. Now,
0: if you broke your leg, would you lick it? No. 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 Would you actually go to see your doctor?
2: I absolutely would.
0: Why do you go with a broken leg? (laughs) Now, we have a friend in Dominic, do we not? Yes. Yeah. And his specialty is?
2: Pediatrics.
0: Neo, neonatology. Yeah. Do you want a neonatologist to look at your broken leg?
2: No, although if he was in the only person in the room, I'd certainly use
0: him. <laughs> <laughs> say you're the only person in the room you'd use him too. No,
1: not
0: <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to make a point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You say you go to William. Now why would you go to an orthopedic surgeon?
2: I think they'd have the skills to Heal me, make the pain go away, and restore
0: me to function. And you trust that when you meet up with him or her the, the name is not shipped?
2: I'd probably do a little bit of Googling and a little bit of research and I'd probably take a family member with me, because I'm a bit of a suspicious soul, but yes, basically. You go
0: to the AI with the you want to do bio, you <laughs> Yep. I usually do a little bit in own times as I the AD. And then comes the question, what can you refuse?
2: Anything I want to, I have full capacity. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> you have to assume capacity in, in the UK until proven otherwise, I'm sorry, you've just got to
5: assume I have full capacity
2: to make my own decisions, to refuse.
0: To refuse. Mm-hmm. Let me give you a case that we recently had at the Mass General Hospital. You know what that is. That's the Ratcliffe of the United States. Yeah. And the woman comes in, 29-year-old woman. She's got a long history of asthma, and she has an asthma attack. She calls her sister, and the sister calls the Mass General and reportedly says, we have no recording of this, uh, we don't, my sister doesn't want a ventilator, and can you promise we won't have a ventilator when we come? And reportedly the answer is yes. So she comes and she meets the resident on the call, the consultant who's at the 7 o'clock in the morning. And the, you call the a and R, A and and e. A and e yeah. You call the ER. But the same. But got we watch same. the programs. We yeah. know America. <laughs> <laughs> She's in communications. And uh, the consultant says, you have a very severe asthmatic attack and we need to put you on a ventilator. She says, I don't want it. And she then runs to the doors. Xavier <laughs> says she needs a ventilator, doesn't she? Maybe. a severe asthmatic attack. So how do you insert a ventilator on the patient who wants to run away? Well, easier, cheaper. You can't. You can't. She can refuse treatment. She's refused it. She's refused it. So you can't t- treat her. He tackles Well, that. <laughs> <laughs> he tackles it. <laughs> well, <her, laughs> well, then he's assaulted her. In a straight jacket, and then put the feeding tube in. Mm-hmm. And 45 minutes later, she's fine, and uh, she leaves. Did okay. she say
1: thank you? Probably.
0: No. Uh, and it gets really complicated because two years later she has another attack and refuses to go to the hospital because she doesn't trust them anymore. The reason you go to the LDP is you trust. You do two things: you believe that he or she knows something about this, and you trust that they're going to act in your behalf for your benefit uh, as you request. Oh, I see it. Yes, yeah. I see it. Yeah. Well, supposing, in fact, Jenny, you're so sophisticated in these things. You have this broken leg, and you say to the orthopedic surgeon, I would really like to be dick Do you know what that is? No, What
2: oh. is dick That's quite fun. Dick-toed. What, <laughs> what did you say? Dick-tod.
0: D-I-N-K is what you use. Oh, dick-toed. When, when your feet go in like this. Oh, um, right, OK. Uh, cosmetic it? adjustment. Pigeon-toed. Pigeon-toed. And you say to the orthopedic surgeon, I would like you to rotate my femur 14 degrees to the right, please.
2: I can't make them do anything they don't think is right. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can refuse them to do something like to me, but I can't ask them to do something. Well, you That's can. An aviation, but I can, it. but they can ignore it. And I hope they would. I mean, actually, given what happens with cosmetic surgery, there is a question mark over that. But oh, yeah. yeah,
0: So you have a question what obligation does the patient have to undergo the nutritional fluid death?
2: None. None.
0: And it became clear that he had stated he didn't want this. Like the wife, seven adult children all said this is what he said. The court believes this, and the jury doesn't believe it. he thinks it's murder, and they're indicted for the first degree murder. And the argument before the court was very simple. He had no obligation. He didn't want it. He had no obligation to undergo it. If he declined it, what right does the physician have to impose it on him? And the answer is
2: no. sanctity of life. Um, only potential future recovery. He was wrong to want that. He might be a new person. His past. The only is-
0: justifications that really have merit are life saving. What's that? Life saving. Well, the, the emergency situation? The emergency situation, that's what the doctor thought. So the just an emergency situation and she would die if she didn't get it, so he tackled it and put it in four point
3: restraints. Just, can we just be clear? Has, is it in this case that the patient has said to somebody that he doesn't want ANH, but has not formally refused yeah. treatment? So there's nothing to say that he, he said no if I had to get this, I want it. It's just that it's not something that he would like. Because uh, there is a difference, true. I think.
0: Did you mean, mean he didn't use the words artificial, nutritional fluids? He, he didn't
3: have that specific case in mind. It's just this is not the kind of thing he could yeah. like. But it, 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 that, that, that and, in
0: fact, is what the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court at the time, Mr. to argued in one of these cases. Saying the patient didn't say she didn't want artificial, nutritional fluids. She didn't want heroic means. Who would think of food and water as heroic means? Yeah. And so authorized it, uh, but that that was in the Kuzan uh, case early on. But in this case, it was clear that they this was they had contemplated this. This is not something. That they yes. Did. Oh. And so the the hearing magistrate dismissed it, and the appeals court the same appeals court the same three judges that you had in there. Conroy, just, did you have a chance to look at that? It's really strong. He said. He said. These judges said, what the doctor did was monstrous. How dare the doctor? Or, they also attacked these judges, three appeals court judges, attacked the lower court judges saying, the court has no authority, the judge has no authority. Who makes the decisions over your body? And on what basis? And the basis is, of course, two, two, we have two arguments. One is privacy, which is the right to be left alone, the right to be free of unwanted government and or outside intervention in your life. And the other is consent. You have a right to be free of unwanted touching. You have a right to be free to be left alone. And a very old case back in 1914, anybody who touches the patient without the consent of the patient commits an assault for which they shall be liable and damages anyone. So you have very, very clear articulated rationale as to why this would happen. When this case went to the appeals court, very strongly came down saying the patient has absolutely no obligation to undergo what the physician proposes. You go to the physician. Why? And interestingly, the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Association got into big dispute over maternal fetal conflicts and saying, what's the role of the physician? The obstetrician was really, really interesting, saying, who is the patient of the obstetrician? You know what an obstetrician is it? Yes. Yeah. you read them out.
4: Oh, That's right. You've never seen one, I assume. I've never seen an obstetrician. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: professional. Delivering a baby. <laughs> no, you, you have a professional gone from an obstetrician consultant. Ah, right, OK. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't. You no, seen Yes, you might have seen one. That's why we have to correct it. And now, if the obstetrician is dealing with a pregnant woman, who are the patients of the obstetrician? Um, the, I don't know why they serve the
4: woman, obviously. Um I right, see so the, the woman baby, um,
0: and the fetus. fetus. And supposing there's a conflict between the fetus and the mother, what do we do? <laughs> go to court, usually. Usually they go to court. No. The, the big case for it here was a case in the District of Columbia at George Washington Hospital. A woman is in her 23rd week of pregnancy, she has cancer, and she said she would deliver the baby by C section if it had 28 weeks, but in the 24th week, the assessment was she was going to die in the next 24 to 48 hours. And they said, oh, we better do the (coughs) C-section. So the the consultant doesn't go to get the consent. Whom do they send? The The registrar goes down. And she says, I don't want it. Now they've got an awful dilemma on their hands. Here they are. They believe that this fetus, at 23 or 24 weeks it was, potentially could survive. Mom says she doesn't want the C-section. You can't deliver it vaginally. What do you do? Nothing. It's a bit of No Okay. Dominate Six, but on this one, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> Court-ordered
3: caesarean. that's
1: what they go for. court orders, caesarean. No. No.
4: Uh,
0: well, of course, you have been known to do all kinds of strange things.
3: Uh, Sometimes they they imagine that she suddenly
0: lost capacity in a convenient way. Yes. Yes. Uh, But but not always. Not always. And in this particular case, they went to court and got a court order to do the C-section. The baby died within two hours. Mom died the next day. And the family in great American tradition did what? (laughs) On the grounds you had no right to do this. What do you think the appeals court said? What's that? Get me some money. Write a big check. That's <laughs> right. And change your policy in the hospital. And they wrote policy there. And who became really concerned about this was the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So they wrote a policy position that says the role of the physician is to be a counselor and consultant to provide information to the patient and that is the extent of his or her obligations. And having done that, the physician bears no responsibility for the decision that the well-informed woman makes. What were they actually, what was that policy all about? Protecting the physician. Protecting physicians from potential liability. And if you say that the physician has a fiduciary duty to both the fetus and the mother, then what a mess that is. It's yeah. much easier to say, no, whatever she says, we'll do. And what we've come down to fairly much uh, is that at least competent patients, even to the non-competent patients. Competent patients have a right to decline any and all unwanted medical interventions. And the question then becomes, is artificial nutrition and fluid a medical intervention or is it just ordinary food? And the issue today was about ordinary food. Uh, and Certainly, every court of final jurisdiction, including in the UK, has said that artificial, artificial fluids are? Medical. medical. treatments. To be assessed as any other medical treatment, and what way do you assess whether or not to utilize an intervention? The no. risks and benefits. The risks and benefits, same thing. We do this with respiratory. And in fact, the, the, the appellate court, the three-judge panel that we did, had a very interesting comment. When they looked at, and most of these judges will take I don't know anything about medicine. Why are you asking me? I gave a talk recently on new forms of reproduction to a group of chief judges of the United States, state courts. And the chief justice of the court in California said, I don't even know what you're talking about. We were talking about fetal ovary transplants. He said, I don't even know what it means. Does it mean we can have babies? What do you think I said to him, Xavier? (laughs) <laughs> I said, Judge, I don't think you know the birds from the bees <laughs> but you go to these and you ask them these questions and they will, they will make decisions some of them are terrible uh, in fact, George who writes frankly in the Journal in- on Law and Medicine says most trial judges have the slightest idea what they're talking about and judge. but they do have an idea if you talk to trial judges spiritual judges they say I'm going to have to face whom in the courtroom the crying mother the spouse the family and I know perfectly well that no matter what I rule the losing side will do what appeal so let the judges upstairs handle it they don't have to see the crying mother so the easy way out is to say, <coughs> do it and you can heal. You ought to keep going. Judge Crompton, if you read the concurring opinion in the, in the Bouvier case, said, this is cruel beyond imagining, making the patients suffer for six more months just so that we can kick the can down the field. It's awful. He called judges worse than doctors. What, what they've done
3: here is they, they've put a load of expert judges. In you cases through them in the court of protection, which might be a more efficient system.
1: We do that so with... Court of protection efficient? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a lot
2: better than this. And they are learning. Yes. I mean, There's more than the I'm judges.
3: I will say, yeah, there is a link. I agree. Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, there have been lots of these cases, and the real issue that comes up is how do you make decisions for now Incompetent, who never in fact made any statements by that. in And there's Caroline Quinlan, she was 80, 20 years old. And she in fact had made some comments, but the trial judge in New Jersey, which is a really good court, said those were casual comments of an 18 year old, and we don't give much credibility. In fact, later in the Conroy case, they said, if We made a mistake, you should have given credibility to it. But what do you do for the never competent? Hmm. That's so difficult. David, these are your kind of questions. This is what philosophers do, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. Here we have another competent. We have no idea what she will have. She's never said anything that we know of. Nor have you, as far as I know. Suppose you were suffering a cerebral incident with a well-diagnosed persistent dead state. Who would be testimony as to what you, in fact, have said about this issue?
4: But I've been competent then.
0: You're now in our conference.
4: I guess it's a current, um, well, probably like next to Kim, person responsible or something like yeah. that.
0: Yeah. You, you have some next. some family alive. Okay. <clears> have <throat> you talked to them about these issues? Um, not that I
1: remember.
0: No. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how do we make this issue? I'll tell you just very, very quickly. What the New Jersey Supreme Court did in the Quinlan State, look, we've done a survey. And of all the people in this room, there's a notch. Sometimes it's hundreds and hundreds of people. How many said he or she would like to have future two research? It's a very small percentage. One. So the court said if she reaches a state, we can presume that she would act as the vast and majority of people would do It's a so-called rational person standard. And so that she's a reasonable, as we would with Xavier. He's a reasonable individual and he would do what the reasonable person would do. But then, along comes the next case was Mr. Safe, which was a patient who was in a state institution all his life, had an IQ of about 10, and had never had a conscious, articulated thought in his life. How do you make a decision for him? You can't use a rational person, Senator, because he's never been rational. But
4: why not? Why can't? You? I mean, he's never—he's never actually been rational himself. But I mean, what other standard are you going to use?
0: Well, that's a good question. They were the faced with this. Sure. And they went—the strangers Court went to a British court, an old, old British case called *Ex parte whitebread a lunatic. The British don't mince words, do they? <laughs> and this was a very wealthy man in the UK. And he gave $10,000 as a dowry to his first daughter, 10,000 pounds to the second daughter. Then he goes mad. That's the word they use here, isn't it? And under your statutes, all of his assets now can be used only for what? His purposes. Third daughter comes along, there's no alienation. Does she get $10,000? Or 10,000 pounds? Mm. Help! 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 Z, he's running with this one. Oh, you're asking me? A question? <laughs> <Because what laughs> no, no, make, no, no! I'm getting some help. You go to the court
2: of protection and argue that that would have been his intention, and there was no alienation, and you make a statutory will on that basis, or something like and that. And what they did
0: was they they used the so-called standard, and the nomenclature is terribly misleading because it says "substitute judgment." It doesn't mean the court substitutes mm-hmm. judgment. It means, and this is the exact words they use, and I love these words, and I use them when I have the Supreme Court judges in front of me, that the role of the court is to quote, don the mental mantle of the incompetent. <laughs> I said something our courts do all the time. <laughs> 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 that is, they have to see themselves for one big shining moment is if they were reasonable, conscious, see themselves as unconscious, and never been reasonable. What would they want? And this was whether or not to give leukemia, this patient had to give them chemotherapy. When you know the vast overwhelming majority of people who are not compromised mentally elect the chemo. Why do they elect the chemo? They know it's going to be painful. Why would they elect it?
2: You know. They think it's worth going through, to, to come through the other side, and they can manage the process. And
5: they can manage losing their it hair and the to pain experience. and the vomiting
0: because they live in hope that they will get better. better. What will Mr. Sakelitz, who's never been?
2: Fight it, struggle, not understand what's happening to him. It'll
0: feel like torture. He will feel the pain. Now, would you, if you could see yourself, agree to suffer pain without any expectation of them? No, so that's what they came up with as a substitute judgment. Now the New York court of Appeals, the highest court in New York says, that is a fairy tale of total fabrication, judicial fantasy, nonsense. Now there is a good default position there. What's the default position that we would have? If we don't know what this patient would want, we don't want to take risks of putting some- Rational,
4: not the rational, substitute judgment
0: and convincing evidence from the patient when competent, the only rationale for withdrawing is, if he had said this, or wrote it down better still, while competent, then we have evidence of what he would have wanted. But in the absence of that, it is a charade to attribute a position to this non-responsive patient. So you have three options, which one do you out awesome. of those three? Yeah. So what do I would say? Rational of judgment or clear and convincing evidence?
4: Well, I try clear and convincing evidence first, probably.
0: You would. Now, who's not protected under that standard you just have to do? Children? Children? All children are unprotected,
4: aren't they? The quote-unquote, like, those who would be classified incompetent at the time they made the statements.
0: Yeah. Um, the never competent. Yeah. The ignorante. Those who don't know that you should have written it, huh? Or the slothful. Mm-hmm. Now, which route do you follow? The slothful. <laughs> you know that, don't you? And you haven't done it. You're in good company. 96% of people in England and Wales haven't mm-hmm. taken advantage mm-hmm. of the advanced decision. Right. More than 30% right. of the rest. And under Xavier's standard, they're all going to get treated whether they want it or not.
2: Yep, and that's yep. what's happening in England and Wales.
5: Right. I think our time has expired. So, so uh, our time is is reaching its close. Now, there, there's been a uh, a distinct uh, imbalance of power here. All the questions have come from from John. So now's your chance to redress the balance. Um, uh, feel free. So feel feel free to, to pose John the tricky questions. Um, we 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 could we could do the version of your your straw poll and. Um, of who in this room would choose in in the setting of um, being permanently unconscious to have a feeding tube and to be kept alive, perhaps in the hope that technology in 37 years' time might have changed. Or, um, so, uh, so uh, perhaps people who would choose not to be kept alive with artificial feeding first. Uh, people who would like to be kept alive with feeding tubes.
4: There is um, between. Yeah, <laughs> no, we, we just don't know.
5: Yeah, okay. Well, so yeah. that kind of corroborates, corroborates your claim in terms of at least people's views but that ethics isn't necessarily just a question of what, what people's views are. You, you've got a question for John. Yeah, well,
3: it's, it's, it's related. So, so there's one question about what you would do yourself, the other is what you would do for somebody else. So um, if
4: you said, um, if you had a, a child who had an accident
5: um, and uh, was in a coma
4: and probably wouldn't survive, that you were holding on to some chance that they
3: would, um, h- how many people would, would withdraw, um, uh, particularly tube feeding? Are you are you now the parent or the physician?
5: No, well, no, the parent. parent. So... so um, well, we could we could have that we could have, add that, add, have that poll so we could say so imagine you're a parent of a child who is unconscious presumed long lasting but uh, there's some hope you hold on to some small small chance of of recovery would you want uh, artificial nutrition to be continued for your child in that setting? So so we'll, we'll have the same same sequence so. Votes for, you wouldn't you Wouldn't choose, wouldn't uh, choose So you wouldn't choose a feeding tube for your child in, in that setting. Um, you uh, would choose that for your child. Um, so there's a couple of votes. And don't know. That's the best one <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And let, me, let me show you how, how
0: far we can go with this. As to how much authority do you want to give to parents? And this is a big, big question. We, we change. Everything changed around 1990. Uh, up until 1990, all the big F bioethics questions had to do with withdrawing ventilators, dialysis, artificial nutrition fluid. But by 1990, we had two things happen. A, at least in the United States, you have the Supreme Court saying that the competent patient has the right to decline any and all unwanted, and the various states could set up whatever evidentiary standard they want, and that's legitimate. Uh, And then you came to the question of how are you going to do it for the non-competent patient? Mm -hmm. And we have a huge variety of standards in the States. New Jersey has rational person. They then shifted later in the Conroy case to saying, oh, there are three ways. One, if they made a clear statement. That's the best. Two, if they have known values that we can uh, learn from their family and relatives. And three, if they're in intractable pain that would be such as to be inhumane. But that doesn't apply to anybody in PBS, does it? Mm-hmm. And in fact, it reduces the patient only to being a pain avoider. But Jenny had other reasons why she didn't want to be maintained this way.
2: Effect on my family. Effect on the NHS. I don't think I'm an island. I think my moral judgments are part of that oh, network, and my personhood that. is part of that. No man is an
0: island unto himself. Yeah, there she is. She's a little. Lot of Europe fall into the sea, I, I am for Westbrook. John Dunn's Meditation on Emerging Occasion. I should have see that. learned that in 1954 as a freshman in college. you have never
5: forgotten. Do we have other questions? Xavier.
0: Um, okay, so coming
4: from a, like, obviously a non-medical background, um, I the, the main kind of question I have whenever these scenarios are thrown out is What on earth is meant by the idea of a vegetative state? And like, are there different grades or degrees of kind of consciousness? And why on earth is there reference, like, vegetative? Like, where did that term come from?
0: The the term came from Fred Klum, uh, who was a neurologist at NYU. And what he observed was the difference between coma and this condition. And he noticed that after about two weeks of people who were in coma... Have a different behavioral pattern. They have wake sleep cycles. People in comas don't have wake sleep cycles. Their eyes open, but they don't track. They just move randomly. That was the whole big thing about Shy I said, Oh, she's responding. Look, there's a little clip here on her eye move. But that was a two hour clip out of a 24 hour period. Two minutes. Of that. And uh, so, persistent better state, they define as a state of And it takes six months to certify in this country. And it depends on whether it was a ischemic episode, or if it was a trauma. Trauma takes longer to to, to to designate. But the expectation is, certainly after a period of time, there's going to be no, there's no realistic expectation. Now, sometimes in this diagnosis, you have what's called a locked-in syndrome, which the patient, they learn this because the patient's eyes track, but they can't speak, they can't respond, and they communicate through a sign board, an alphabet board. I saw one of these, David Mack, in Minneapolis, and we had a conversation. What do you think he said, or indicated? H E. got your pen there? H-E-L-P, M-E, what's the next? E-I-E. Now, what do you
4: want to do there? Come
0: on. So he's, yeah, okay, well, that complicates things. Yeah, it does. Yeah. He's conscious. Mm. I have to think
5: about it. <laughs> um, Raj, you had a question, so John.
3: What's interesting about the substitution judgment thing is that it's not the patient making the decision, It's, we're making a decision about and it's the doctors who have to execute that decision, and I, I, I struggle with that. Whose judgment are we substituting? And do you see what
0: I'm saying? Yes, but be careful. The language is terribly confusing. No, I agree. Uh, and really, is is there any way of discerning what? It, in, in the case I had was this man who has uh, leukemia. Would he, and he's never been competent, no. would he want the chemotherapy yes. if he could speak? And we know he's never been competent and he never will be competent. Exactly, because it
3: strikes me that you're making a decision about his care and you're creating a
0: fiction to justify your action. And that's exactly what they did. And then they said it is a fiction, but what's the, the alternative is to take Xavier and say to him, we're going to put this feeding tube into you and keep you here. And, and you're going to resist it. Well, or, well, we're going to give you chemotherapy. You're going to resist yeah. that. And they said the only way we're going to be able to provide him with the chemotherapy is to do what? Every time he comes near you, he'll strike on hands. Yeah, oh, so it's you're going to put him in, tie his hands out. So Rashi, do you want to do this? Well, I don't
3: know. Because I, I think you could use it different time. Well, we
0: use a standard of view. Would you really want to be tied down and subjected to what's causing you suffering when you have no understanding and no capacity to understand what the purpose of it is? If if I was have leukemia mm-hmm. and there was a potentially
3: curable
0: leukemia, yeah. but the treatment was possible. Yeah, he then had at least the, the hematologist had. He had a thirty percent chance of remission from three to eight months. That's what they held out.
3: If it was complete cure, back to normal quality of life, then I would say, okay, if it's a little bit of benefit, the price of, of being held down like that doesn't seem, well, and it's a risk-benefits thing, but it, it's not, if you're substituting, what you're actually doing is weighing the benefits and risks but by a reasonable person's
0: family. Trying to do that for this patient who's not, that's exactly what they were doing. I know, but yeah. that's, they're hiding behind this. this. Well, well, the alternative is Xavier's, and I'll give you the, the, the companion case, was it in New York. He was another profoundly compromised uh, individual, IQ of of an eight-month-old. His mother visited him every single day since 1942. This is in the 1980s. And he got cancer of the kidneys and was losing blood. And he was losing one unit of blood every eight days or so. And the mother found, and he resisted the blood transfusions because how do you transfuse blood?
5: You put a needle in. Put a needle in,
0: and he didn't like the needle. So his mother said, "What are you giving him blood transfusions for? Stop them." Now, blood transfusions, ordinary, or extraordinary, and now you know why those words no longer serve. But what's the proportional benefit and burden that accrues to this patient for That's the actual arithmetic that's going on, and it seems dishonest. And. To uh, the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court, followed you. Said, We're not going to go with that fantasy out of Massachusetts about substituted judgment unless we have clear evidence from this man when he was competent. Now, when was this man ever competent? So our rule in New York was everybody who has not made a public statement or will get everything possible to sustain life as long as possible. No, that's a different statement. That's what they came up with. So what they do here is they use a best interest
3: judgment. It doesn't mean that you have to do everything. You have to, that it's, a different, that it's a bit more flexible in that sense. It really depends on who the judge is. Exactly. exactly. And, and that's probably. the problem. And do you yeah. really want to have <laughs> Russian roulette
0: with the... <laughs> well with
5: Jenny, you've got a question and we're, we're uh, and almost the, out of time. Uh, uh,
2: uh, I just wanted to ask if you'd comment on, on the role of religion here and are we individuals who should be making autonomous choices, or is there, are there bigger issues here and the world of the Catholic Church?
0: Well, first of all, I, I, I wrote an article one time against Bob Beach called Autonomy run Amok." I think that the notion that we are autonomous entities in the Millsian sense is utter fantasy, total fiction. Uh, I used an example today with talking to Dominic. I said, if in fact, over his mind and his body, every human is sovereign, I asked Dominic, what would be different about Dominic? I said, I could just use myself. I wouldn't be five foot six. I wouldn't be bald. And I wouldn't need glasses. Can I change any of those? So we don't have that degree of sovereignty in this economy that we're... And then the other fallacy is that we're all absolutely independent. We're sort of like... You, we're sort of like Leibnizian free floating monads. You know what those are? Yes. <laughs> 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 I know
4: what <it>
0: <laughs> are. you one of them?
4: No. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. No.
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and the, the great theory about the monads is that they never interact, they never touch, they never involved. But your life is totally involved in relationships, isn't it? And so you say, well, that's an, an inadequate. Assessment. We're not purely autonomous. And part of, of where we've gone, when we adopted this idea that, that we will just use autonomy, is that everyone thinks that he or she is absolutely sovereign. And not only, we have, we have very clear directions in, in the evolution of this. Absolute right to decline unwanted medical interventions. Everybody understands that. But that quickly morphed over about 1990 when we solved the problem of you don't have to have dialysis, too. If I am sovereign, what does that mean? I can demand my dialysis. I can demand anything I want, and you must. And I'll give you the furthest most example of that. It's an ongoing case right now in the United States called Jay McMath. She's brain it and meets all of the criteria, and the judge in the Superior Court in California declared that she's legally dead, and the coroner issued a death certificate. The parents say, we don't believe she's dead, and we don't believe that judges or doctors should determine who's dead. Only parents can decide whether their children are alive or dead. Try that in the UK. What's your population here? Six million. Six million. Six you million. want to have six million people deciding whether Aunt Jenny is alive or dead in the attic? Mm. Think of the public health mm. problems we have from that. Very yeah. And in fact, one of the great constraints upon the right to demand is you can do whatever you want, provided that your actions don't present an immediate, clear, and present danger to the public health, safety, welfare. For example, if you had contagious tuberculosis, are you free to just do what you want, get on an airplane? And no, I'm you, on. you can be arrested. Yeah. So we don't have absolute freedom. So that idea that we have that we're totally autonomous entities is just a, it's a fantasy.
5: What about the other question that Jenny asked about the role of religious traditions or the views of tradi- religious traditions on this question of whether individuals... So should a good Catholic just accept the feeding tube? Would it, would a good Catholic be allowed to refuse the feeding tube? Well,
0: I've spent my whole life dedicated to being a Catholic, and my advanced director says, if I'm ever in an institution that believes that you must have a feeding tube inserted. Please transfer me immediately me to a hospital.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, and we had, for 500 years, a consistent moral tradition in the Catholic Church, that feeding... And in fact, this historically, you go back to... Uh, to the Victoria, to Victoria, and then... Uh, we're talking about in the Relaxing Lyciology. Supposing, in fact, he's talking about hens and partridges. And you could live another 20 years if you ate partridge. But what do we know about partridges?
1: They live in pear trees. They live in
0: pear trees. <laughs> <laughs> They're expensive. But I'll give you a prime example, another good example. Supposing, in fact, we're, we're now living in a society which doesn't have a a big social welfare net. And you run a farm and you sell eggs, and this is how you pay for it. And one of the members of the family gets sick, and the solution is Jewish penicillin. Now, for Jewish penicillin, what do you need, Jenny? Chickens. 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 And so we have to kill a chicken a day to get the chicken soup. And at the end of 300 days, what happens to our farm? I'm, sorry, I'm a lifelong vegetarian. Are you asking me the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you eat eggs, don't you? I do eat eggs. And where do we get the eggs? Chickens. And if we use them all for chicken soup,
2: we don't get any eggs.
0: And then we all stop. Stop. <laughs> Are you morally obliged to do that? No. No. So if if in the 15th century, they talked about chickens and eggs. How much more so with feeding gastrostomies and pig tubes?
5: Well, we, we've, en- we've ended our talk on, on, uh, on the question of the chicken and the egg, which, which is perhaps a, a, a fitting and uh, challenging uh, end to, to a great uh, discussion and exploration of... The, of both the profound and and, uh, and absurd, uh, and, absurd and, and simpler ethical questions around nutrition, hydration obligations on treatment. I'd like you to join me in thanking Professor. John Paris uh, for a fascinating uh, evening. Thank you very much.) Thank you.